Glad you are here, and we are continuing our series. How many ordinary people are here with me? Can I see our hands, all right? Would you say extraordinary Jesus? Because that's who we are, that's who he is. That's been our series all throughout the summer. And I've really enjoyed it, and I can't wait just to unpack uh, this weekend's message. Uh, Jesus, we're going to deal with uh, the extraordinary Jesus and his most important question. And we answer and ask lots of questions in life. How many of you were ever asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, I want to ask how many it turned out that way, but I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm sure you are as well. And then we get asked small questions like, would you like fries with that? Right? And depending on how often you say yes and supersize it, that could be a problem. Uh, will you marry me? That's a big question to ask or answer. Uh, and then small things. Where do you want to eat? What do you want to do tonight? Where do you want to go on vacation? What do you want to watch? Do you want the job? Did I get the job? All sorts of questions. Well, Jesus asks a question that is really a question for all of us, for me and you. And it is the most important question anyone has in their entire life. And uh, it was during a time when there was a lot of hubbub about him and a lot of talk about who is Jesus, who does he think he is. And he's trying to land that clearly with his followers, and he wants to do that today as well. But he asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And for you, who do you say Jesus is? That answer is phenomenally important. And Jesus answers that uh, throughout the Gospels. And one Gospel that's very clear in, he says at least eight times, uh, who I am, I am, I am. And that's the Gospel of John. So we're going to kind of park in that fourth Gospel, uh, the Gospel of John. And look at who Jesus is. Not only who do you say that he is, but who did he say that he is? How does he describe himself? And if you have the CLC app, you can follow along with us. Uh, the first thing he said is that I am the bread of life. And he said that in John chapter 6, verse 35. He said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And the more I think about this point, I really could almost spend the entire message just on that thought. But I've got some bread over here. Uh, a young lady named Lilani sold this to me yesterday at Panera. Uh, she attends CLC as well. And this happens to be their sourdough bread. And it's really good. If anybody has some butter, that would mm, make it excellent. Anybody? No. If you have butter, I don't think I want it right now. But that's really good bread. That'd be good toasted. That would make a great grilled cheese sandwich. Ooh. So bread fills you up. When I was a kid, um, I had an uncle who used to say I had a hollow leg because where did all my food go, right? And uh, to, uh, to make my appetite affordable, my mom would say, eat some bread if you're hungry, right? Because it fills you up, it satisfies you, it takes away the hunger. And so Jesus, it doesn't surprise me when he says, I'm the, I'm the bread of life, because it's, it's satisfying. And we're to turn to him with our, the hungers of our soul. And theologians have long uh, used different analogies that uh, we all have a God-shaped void in us. There's a hunger in our soul uh, for who God is. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one you're hungry for. And when it comes to uh, that bread, you know, when I talked about the series that we had right after Easter, we talked about ordinary people, extraordinary purpose. I said, one of my hopes for us as a church is that you could summarize our mindset, our attitude that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we do, we're satisfied. 
But uh, it's also clear that that's not all we hunger for. And so if you go to a different place in Scripture, go to Genesis, the, the creation account, we say that Eve bit the apple. We don't know if it was an apple. Probably wasn't, but some kind of fruit. And so in the garden, Satan tempts Eve and says, uh, forget that. <laughs> that would be, oh, hmm? Ooh, that would be delicious. That's delicious. Like it's all juicy right now. Got that at Panera too. I know it's rude to eat in front of you. This is really good. See, we've got an adversary who says, don't be satisfied with bread. When there's so many other things to address your appetite. And as I let that thought sink in, just anticipating this message, I really began to realize how much we are tempted. Well, yeah, let's put it this way, first of all. How many of you will admit <laughs> that your appetite can be a problem for you? Right? Man, I can eat. I can eat a lot. And it's not just fruits and veggies, you know? And, and then it's not just an appetite for food. We can have an appetite for other things, other pleasures, tastes. There's a lot in life that Satan says, oh, just take a bite of that. It's good. The reality is, it is. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable. It's just momentary. It's fleeting doesn't leave you permanently satisfied. And as I began to think about our soul hungers, we hunger for companionship and for purpose. We hunger to feel valued and loved and cared about. And we hunger for success, success and all sorts of things. And likewise, when we're hurt, we look for soothing. And, I, and so I want to ask you the question, where do you go besides the bread of life to fulfill your your love hunger, your hunger for attention, to be heard. When you don't feel like you're heard. We had a great man church Thursday night, and uh, we're at a place up north that has axe throwing and cornhole, and we had some great uh, barbecue. I was talking to some of the guys that are part of our recovery ministries that we partner with, they're part of CLC. One of the guys was, we were celebrating together, he's been sober for six months and saved in prison, and God's really just, it's a testimony of how if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. And we talked on a cautionary note. You have to be careful, though, because Satan is really good, just like he kind of sidled up next to Eve in the Garden of Eden. When things aren't going good, ah, forget it. I got to find some powder. I got to find a liquid. Maybe you have to find a, a web page. Maybe you just pour yourself into what stuff or money or things or success or popularity or whatever. But what is it that you go to? What appetites do you try to appease instead of turning to the bread of life? Especially when you feel the hunger of it. Last time you felt lonely to just say, hey, man, I got to dive deeper in his word when you felt disappointed or misunderstood, you said, oh, I just need to spend time with the Lord. 
Or does it drive us to, boy, do you just need to go find a good sale and shop some more? Do you ever find that good deals, they still wears off? But, I, but there's these hungers and these desires in us, and I, I've just been trying to think about it, so I suggest to you spend some time here and here reflecting on when you're tempted, strong, strong ways of temptation, ask yourself, what hunger or thirst or desire deep down am I really feeling that's driving me to this instead of him? I think you'll have some aha moments. I'm the bread of life. Second thought, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And you're going to find he makes some bodacious, just awesome claims about himself. This is no exception. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said to them, again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in that verse, he describes and makes a claim. Who can say I'm the light of the world? Who can claim that? Who can, who can say that with any kind of honesty or believability? And yet he does exactly that. And I'll read for you. Matthew and Luke give us a biographical away in a manger description of the birth of Jesus. Mark skips it all together, and John gives a theological explanation of the birth of Christ. And he says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so he's establishing there Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. If John has any intent among them, it is to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. He is, he is divine. All things came into being by him and apart from him, apart from Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now that idea of not comprehending it, uh, different translations take that word different directions. Didn't understand it. Also, didn't overcome it and didn't put it out. And that is still true today. While many have wanted to snuff out the light of Christ, make him invalid, many don't understand him, he still stands the test of time. And then verse 9 says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. But then verse 12, as many as received him, the light of the world, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Would you say children of God? Even to those who believe in his name. So Jesus makes this declaration. And if there is ever a time that we need the light of the world, it is as our world gets increasingly dark in a moral and spiritual way. Malcolm Keith is a longtime uh, seal seer, and now he's involved uh, with, uh, I think, his young life and several schools across our inner city. I ran into him at the parking lot of Walmart a week or so ago, and he was just buying a bunch of stuff for a camp they were having, all excited, and we kind of helped support that ministry. He said, Pastor Stan, I now meet kids in high school who have never heard of Jesus. Who's that? Don't know anything about him. 
And we're really raising a generation that is totally unfamiliar with this book, that it's a divine book, and that Jesus is who he said he is. If there is ever a time, the Bible says, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Our lives are meant to be living flashlights. Where you work, where you live, where you do business, where you're out and about, you are meant to be a living flashlight to reflect the light of Christ to a darkened world. And then he makes a couple of claims that go together. Uh, the third one, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. Now that, those, those two thoughts require a bit of a New Testament perspective. And I picture Jesus maybe sitting on a mountainside or a hillside and there are sheep across the way there and there is a, a sheep pen, a sheep fold, whatever, a corral for sheep. And they would typically make that out of a wall of stones from the field and then there's a gate there. And in John 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Now, what does that mean, I am the door? Well, let's link it together with John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Say good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So if you think back to the 23rd Psalm, one of the most popular Psalms where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leaves me beside still waters, makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul, <sighs> my mind, my will, my emotions. And then it says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so those paths of righteousness as he leads us, sometimes God leads me where I don't want to go because he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Some of you are in those dark, difficult places right now as I speak. But you don't have to be afraid. I wish he led us around all those valleys of death, but many times he doesn't. It's right through it. And then he says that uh, I'll not be afraid because your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. And he says, you, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So picture Christ being your maitre d', sitting you at this table, and right a couple tables away are people that can't stand you. I don't know if it's a, an ex or a coworker or a former coworker or whatever, but they just animosity. And Jesus, in this analogy, wants to say, I can give you a sense of peace and well-being in spite of or even in the context of rela relational conflict. Because, quick, quick survey, how many of you, your relational world is not perfect? Can I see our hands? Well, if we've got to have everybody liking me and me liking everybody else and everything to be, ah, before I can feel, ah, I'm never going to feel, ah. As my mentor, one of my mentors used to say, it would be nice if everybody loved me, but it's not necessary. So turn to your neighbor and tell them it's not necessary. It's nice, but not necessary. And so as we look at the the artist's rendering of this idea of Jesus as the good shepherd and being the door. Let's toss that up on the screen. So you see there, you ain't going to get to those sheep unless you get through the shepherd. There may or may not be a gate there, but regardless. And Jesus said the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hireling, nope, he's out of there. But man, if a wolf, a predator comes, a thief comes, he's gonna, you're not going to get to those sheep until you get through him. And in that, that analogy, that image there, it is meant to communicate to you a sense of safety. <sighs> and also a sense of care. 
as the sheep would go into that sheepfold, uh, the shepherd would use his staff and stop the sheep, check it out, make sure that it's, it's not wounded, there's no disease, let it in. Next one, let it in. In fact, I'm told that the idea about anointing my head with oil, my cup overflows, that anointing my head with oil with the sheep is, a, is almost a veterinary, implica- veterinary implication there about caring for the, for the health needs of that sheep. And so Jesus says, with me, I'm going to take care of you. You can feel safe, and, and I will provide for you. Trust me. It's a very warm and tender image that we think of a shepherd and sheep. The Bible does say that, that sheep know the shepherd's voice, and so we have to learn how to hear him speak to us so we can follow. And then the next claim that he makes in John 11 is just humanly preposterous. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me read the verse for you. It's verse 25. And let me give you the context. Uh, Three siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, good friends with Jesus, been to their home. And then Lazarus gets deathly ill and the sisters send word to Jesus, Lord, please come, Lazarus is dying. And so Jesus gets the message and he waits a couple more days. The disciples are like, I thought you were like great friends with him. What's, what's the delay for? Do you ever have an urgent need, an urgent prayer, and it seems like God's not in a hurry to answer it? Well, they knew that feeling. And he says, well, this is not really to death. It's to glorify God. And yet they get there a few days late and Lazarus has died. He's buried. And one of his sisters says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's kind of pointing the finger. And, and Jesus says to her in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then he asked, do you believe that? And she goes, oh, Lord, I believe. Talks about the last resurrection, you know, what's coming. And he's like, no, I mean right now, up close and personal. And then Jesus proceeds to make his way over to Lazarus' tomb where he's buried. And he calls to him, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus literally is raised from the dead. And Jesus then has the right to make the claim, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it twice because he rose from the dead as well when he was crucified and when he died. And it's important to to identify that our current culture, there are many people who want to downsize Jesus and they want to say, oh, well, Jesus was a great humanitarian. He was a great prophet. He was a great religious person. Like, oh, that's nice. That's That's a phenomenal insult. As Josh McDowell says, you know, Jesus was not like a great humanitarian or a wonderful teacher or whatever. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. I mean, if Jesus told people these claims, I'm the bread of life, I am, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and life, you hear that in a moment. If Jesus said all these things and he knew he wasn't, he was a, just a bold-faced liar, an egomaniac. On top of that, What good teacher or great humanitarian would tell his followers so convincingly that he is who he is, the Son of God, to the point that they believed enough to be martyred for his cause? Eleven of the twelve disciples got martyred, or ten of them did, for the cause of Christ. That's no great teacher telling a lie, knowing his followers are going to die for his lies. He's either a liar or if he said it, and it wasn't true, and he believed it, he's insane. He's a lunatic. Or he really is who he says he is, and he's Lord. And so 
He proved it with Lazarus' empty tomb and his empty tomb. And that's good for us in two ways. First of all, and I'll help you out because Saturday night they just weren't quite paying attention at this point, I think. Um, the correct answer is just to raise your hand. Okay, so. How many of you, unless the rapture happens, and if you're Wednesday night, we're doing end times, we're studying things like that and what's leading to that. So if you have questions about that, come Wednesday at 7 West Auditorium. But unless the rapture happens, how many of you are going to die someday? Okay, it's just going to happen. Death and taxes, two things you can count on, right? I mean, you're not immortal in this earthly body on this earth. You're going to die. And, and so the really good news is I'm going to die. And the Bible says that it's appointed a man once to die in Hebrews, so that forget reincarnation. And after that comes judgment. So when I die, I'll be judged. And if I'm judged for my sins, if I have sins to be judged, I'll be damned for those sins. Unless... I've been forgiven of those sins by this same Jesus. And if Christ forgives me of my sins, the Bible says he cleanses me of all unrighteousness. So when I die, he is the resurrection and the life, and I'll be resurrected to eternal life because I put my trust in Christ, and my name is what they call written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So for all of us who are Christians, it is really good news that he's the resurrection and the life because when you die on this planet, you're, you will, the Bible says you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. So that's a really good thing, all right? If you haven't accepted Christ and you die before you do and you die without him forgiving you of your sins, when you die and stand before God, you will be damned to eternity in hell. Simple truth. Tragic truth. Sobering truth. You can blow it off. You can blow it off your whole life and end up eternity in hell. And Jesus gets even more specific about that in the next point. But the great way to avoid that is to say, whoa, whoa, <laughs> I'm not ready for eternity in hell. I want to be eternity in heaven. And so I'll ask Christ to be my Savior and forgive me, and then you too will have that assurance. So that's the one reason why the resurrection and life is a really good thing for us. The second reason why it's really good that he's the resurrection and the life is that Jesus showed us that he specializes in bringing things to life, not just when we die someday and we go to heaven, but he brings us abundant life now and I believe that, that there are many here today that have needs in your life where things have died. Maybe it was a dream, a relationship, some kind of hope, some kind of endeavor, so whatever it might be, a ministry, a calling, a, 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 you name it. But you know what it's like. Or the way you thought it was going to be and it hasn't been turned out that way and it's all but dead and you've given up hope for that. The reason why we end up giving up hope for something is that, you know, hope doesn't just die like that, typically. It kind of dies like this. And so we lose hope, but then we try to muster it up and then we lose some more and then we try to muster it up and then we lose some more and we lose some more and then poof, when it finally hits rock bottom, we can get to that place where the Bible tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I can't take the heart sick anymore. I just stop hoping. I just give it up. I guess it's not to be. Now, Ecclesiastes does tell us there's a time for everything, and there is a time to, to give up is lost. 
But even if we get to that hopeless place and it's appropriate to give it up, okay, it's done, it's, I'm, it's not going to be. He's the resurrection and the life he can bring to life new dreams for you. There are also, though, times when what you thought was dead, what you thought was hopeless, what everybody said was hopeless, wasn't, and he can speak new life. There are, there are just smoldering coals of hope in your life in some area, some relationship, some whatever, and he can breathe new life into that and bring that back to light. And so I am thankful that as a believer that I'm never fully without hope. And as the resurrection and the life, I want to encourage some of you to open your heart up again to, okay, Lord, do you want to resurrect and breathe new life into things in me? Or is there something new you want to birth out of what was pain and felt like death? If anybody can do it, Jesus can do it. And then this next claim, if we hadn't identified, he's either, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord, this next claim is, is equally as preposterous as being the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he quotes that in John 14, verse 6, he actually adds a qualifier to it that is just, if it weren't Jesus, unbelievable. He said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Next part, hugely important. Our culture today tries to erase this thought. No one, say no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm it. That's kind of exclusive, don't you think? It's kind of arrogant, don't you think? What about all the, what about the, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we get irritated, our culture does, about the exclusivity of truth when it comes to Jesus talking. But let's just take this. Who knows the chemical makeup of water? Say it. H2O. Could it be H3O? Could it be H2O2? That's hydrogen peroxide, right? I learned that last service. I couldn't remember what it was, right? No, it's, it's two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen always. If it's not that, it's not water, period. And nobody is walking, I can't believe that, and leaving. <laughs> two plus two is four. A couple of you had problems with math, might have said five, but it's four. <laughs> always has been, always will be. Like that? <laughs> Multi-talented guy right here. It just is. Truth is exclusive. So is spiritual truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Being the truth then means that we need to believe him. There's a, a, a worldview to have. Being the way means we follow him. And being the life is a lifestyle. So if I accept Jesus who he is, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow him. I'm going to believe in him. And I'm going to live a life that re reflects him. And when he says, no one comes to the Father but by me, that may be offensively narrow, but it's true. And let me use an analogy that will make it a little more palatable for you to think that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because you talk to people, most Americans, overwhelming majority, still believe that there's an afterlife, there's a heaven, not so sure about a hell. And when you ask them, are well, you going to heaven when you die? They'll say yes. And then you ask them, a lot of them will say the wrong reason. Well, because I'm a good person. Like, not like I ever killed somebody. 
Do a survey. See how many people understand. It's crazy how many people, oh, it's not going to kill someone. That's the quality. Don't kill somebody, you get into heaven, right? <laughs> but no, Jesus said, you get there through me. Like that door to the sheepfold. But let's use an analogy. Let's just say that after service, somebody goes, since you talked about Kings Island, put us in the mood to go, let's all go to Kings Island. Yay! So we all show up at Kings Island this afternoon, and we just walk up through the gates, and we walk right in. How many of you think we're going to go all the way inside? Nope. Somebody in security is going to stop us, right? They go, whoa, time out. Uh, excuse me, folks, where are you going? We're going to Kings Island. Well, how do you think, what do you think you're doing? Well, we just decided we're going, so we're going. Who said you could do that? Well, we did. No. You buy a ticket. Buy a ticket? Who says? Uh, the people that own Kings Island? The guy who built Kings Island? Whoever that king is? Mr. Island? <laughs> You're going to follow Mr. Island's rules for getting in. So, none of us go, I can't believe we have to buy a ticket. No, they own it. They set the rules. Hold that thought. Does anybody here own heaven? Any of you create it, make it, set the rules for it? No. So, don't you think we should check with who does kind of own, like, heaven? The one who created it, set the rules for it? Shouldn't we check with them to find out, well, how do we get in? Because I certainly want to go to heaven, not hell. Well, Jesus made it clear. He told us in John, I'm preparing a place for you, heaven. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. So where I am, you may, there you may be also. And the way you get to heaven, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And it's, it's really imperative on us that we make that clear to people now more than ever as our world gets more and more dark spiritually. And then he says, uh, I'm the vine. And I don't want to do another deep dive into that because I dealt with that thought earlier in this series. But I'm the vine, verse 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He repeats that theme in that chapter 15. Other, elsewise, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, a branch, once it's separated from the vine, it can't live, it dies. So there is that inherent emphasis on connection. Stay connected to me. And we see again, the nature of God is revealed all through Scripture and in Jesus. God is a relational God from the beginning. We make man in my image, our image. He's relational. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a sense of connection with you. And so, creating his image, guess what? I want a sense of connection. And so, Jesus says, well, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Let's, let's, let's maximize our connection, our communion. And, and yet, so often, we are tempted away from true connection to alternatives. When you feel lonely, an appropriate thought would be, I need to spend time in prayer. When you're feeling like devalued and unnoticed, I, I, need to, I need to read God's Word in some encouraging passages. When you're bored. But you know what we often do when we're lonely or need connection or value? We, we go to this phenomenon called social media. I meant to get a stat to see how many billions of people are involved in social media. It's incredible. Even in Africa, where people literally are going home to a stick-and-mud hut, they have cell phones. I, I'm like, where do they charge them, you know? 
Because I've been in those huts. There's no electric wires. But, but we, we, go to, we long for connection and validation. It's amazing how much grown adults can temporarily have their mood boosted by that. A like. Ooh, I got likes. Ooh, I got comments. Whoa, somebody shared. <laughs> right? There are studies that abound that social media and online, the digital world, largely thrives on the dopamine hits you get when you get that. Why is the dopamine hit? Why is it so strong? Because it appeals to, in a, I would suggest, bite the apple kind of way, a not real legit hunger satisfying, soul satisfying kind of way, a feeling of feeling like I'm, I'm validated and I belong and I'm connected and I matter and, and I want to be wanted to be with. Because there's this longing in me for connection and, and how how disappointing and sad it is when I turn to social media for a sense of connection and those same sociologists and scientists will tell you that the longer the person, the time spends on social media, the more they're prone to depression and anxiety. And you know it's true. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm on a couple platforms myself, but not a lot. But Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. I'm the vine, you stay connected to me and there will be a, a satisfaction soul deep so that when you are going with other things, as long as you keep that in control and you don't become a habit, that's just kind of icing on the cake, it's just a distress. That's not what you're longing for to thrive on because you'll never thrive on it. I'm the vine. Stay connected to me and I will show you that you matter. And then last thought, two words. When he said who he is, he said, I am. I am. Now, when I say to an American crowd in 2023, Jesus said, I am, we're like, okay, what's that about? When he said that 2,000 years ago to a Jewish audience, that was blasphemy. How can he possibly say he is, I am? You're like, what's that about? Well, if you understand, for, for the Jewish audience, their, their legal system, their laws were literally Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's a Pentateuch. That's how they, they conducted society and their laws by. And, and so they, when Jesus said, I am, to them, they immediately jumped back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And in John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the double slap in the face, Abraham was the founding father of the nation of Israel. Kind of like we talk about George Washington, United States. He was the founding father of the nation of Israel, handpicked by God. Abraham. And before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am, I am, I am, I am. Echoes through the centuries of time. The connection is in Exodus. The, those people of Israel that were chosen by God through Abraham in Genesis, years later, they ended up being slaves in Egypt for four centuries. They're crying out to God for deliverance. And, and God says, he hears their cry, so he speaks to a man named Moses. And at 80 years of age, 
Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. He's a, he's a fugitive from Egypt. I want you to go to Egypt to Pharaoh the king and tell him, God says, let my people go. You can read this story. It is so like you and me. Moses starts to argue with God why he's not going to do it. You shouldn't pick me. Pick somebody else. And he gets down to, you know, whoa, 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 God, God, God I, I have a stutter. I can't, can't, can't talk for you and to, the, to Pharaoh. All kinds of excuses. God gets angry with him. But one of the objections that Moses raises is, well, when I go talk to Pharaoh, who shall I say? When I talk to the Israelites that God is going to deliver you, and they ask, well, what God is going to deliver us? What should I say? Keep in mind, they've been there for 400 years. There is no temple. There's no tabernacle. There's no Ten Commandments at this time. And so they've lost touch with who God is. Think back to when you studied Egypt and, and when you're in school, the hieroglyphics and the, the pyramids and all that. All kinds of gods. Well, which God do I say is sending me? So that's the context. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. And so they held that in their hearts. I am. He's a God of being. He is. He always was, always will be. I am. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, your God is one God. And so imagine the audacity. That's 1,500 years before. Now Jesus is standing there with his crowd of adversaries, and he says, I am. The claim he's making. John started it in the very beginning of his gospel. I read it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, was with God. Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That same I am speaks through the centuries of time to that present day, and I am. I'm Him. I'm divine. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. And, and then another I am is given, and so when he makes the claim, I am, he, uh, he is the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the vine. I am. And then he says something where the I am becomes a, an action statement. The last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, says he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even, amen, he says, even so come Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming back. At the Last Supper, he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And then at the end of the Bible, the very last thing that Jesus says, don't forget, I am coming quickly. And boy, it's, it's been 2,000 years, but 1,000 years is a day in, in God's mind. He is coming back. He is returning for us. And Jesus is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And he will come back. And so as we were anticipating a way to land this message, I was at I think Planet Fitness one day and I like to listen to songs and a lot of times they'll jump out at me and, and so this one actually is, is in my iTunes but it's way back if you saw Jesus Revolution uh, one of the pioneers of contemporary Christian sort of rock music was a guy named Larry Norman and in 1972 he had an album that was uh, called Only Visiting This Planet 
And uh, I love that theme for Christians. I think we have a picture of it coming up. Um, my dad hated that album. <laughs> Long hair, hippie type, you know. But uh, it was quite a pioneer. It was pretty, pretty bold back in those days, conservative now. But he basically wrote this song called The Outlaw that is a response to who did people say that Jesus was? And it lands on the hopefulness of who he is. And he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And so as you listen to this, be encouraged by the words of uh, who Christ is. And we'll close in prayer. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done, but they said it must be something bad that kept him on the Set us free from sin. 
And that's who I believe he is Cause that's what I believe And I think we should get ready Cause it's time for us to And I think we should get ready Cause it's time for us to leave Thanks, Matthew. Did a nice job coming up with that rendition. Would you bow your heads with me? As you sit in the quiet of this moment, would you answer the question, who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus to you based on who he claimed to be? And because he cares about you and wants to abide with you, if there are particular needs that this morning prompted, before I lead us in prayer, take a moment and from your heart to his, tell him what you need. Tell him what's on your heart. If you haven't accepted him yet, but you realize you need him to be your resurrection in your life, then ask him to be your Lord and Savior to forgive you your sins. Maybe there are hungers, hurts, and longings that you need him to, to satisfy and help you to turn to him rather than to turn to that that doesn't. Maybe a direction to light your path, to resurrect things that are hopeless or dead. Whatever it might be, just take a moment and let him hear from you. Lord Jesus, one of, the, one of the best words we can come up with, extraordinary, and yet that doesn't come close to describing how incredible you are. Thank you. Thank you for coming to live and dwell among us and uh, to show your love to us and your power and your care to us and, to, and to, to lead us to who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you're the bread of life. And forgive me for how often I, I turn to other appetites to satisfy me where only you can. Give us the strength. Give us the grace. Turn our hearts to you. Be the light to our path and a lamp to our feet as we, as we follow you, Lord. And those who are just needing a sense of safety or to know your care, I pray that you will comfort each one today. Lord, you know those dreams that are all but dead and gone. And we pray, Lord, that you either show us new directions or breathe new life into those and be our resurrection in life. Thank you that you want to abide in us and us in you. And again, Lord, help us to satisfy our greatest relational hungers in a connection with you. Not to turn to things that are only temporary and don't really satisfy our souls. And we're so grateful that you made a promise and you're a promise-keeping God and someday you're returning for us. Lord, find us faithful and in the meantime, let our light shine before people in such a way that draws them to you. So I pray an amazing sense of encouragement, confidence, trust, love, gratitude towards you from all of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. If you're here today and, and you prayed that prayer and want to have Christ as your Savior, we'd love to help you with that. We have some information we can give you if you'll stop by the VIP room. Uh, if you're new, stop by there as well. We have a gift for you. 
other than that, a couple of things. Uh, when you leave today, if you'd like to join us in the West Auditorium for lunch, it's a Guts, GSV, Guts Size Vision lunch. And uh, we have uh, uh, the director of uh, Miami Valley Women's Center now called Hope Rising. Sherry Lawson will be there to share one of the ministries that we, share, that we support. Uh, Wednesday night, ladies, uh, Mary Thomas launched Cafe Conversations in the cafe. Just a good chance to meet some ladies. Uh, if not that, join us at 7 in the West Odd for uh, teaching about end times. Uh, with that said, one more piece of homework, all right? Uh, last night, uh, we have a prayer team during each service, and the prayer team members last night uh, shared, well, well, there needs to be something that people can take, we can take with us. What do we take from that? So I'm going to ask you before you leave, when you stand, you can stand up. All right, let's get some house lights in the, in the balcony, in the stadium seats as well. And uh, I'll ask you to turn to somebody else, ideally not who you came to church with, but I'll let you buy on that, to tell them one takeaway you have from today's service. All right? God bless you. Tell them one. Have a great day.